Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guests are Daniel Fraga and Owen Cox. Daniel is the author of the book, Ontological Design, Subject is Project, which, looking up on my Kindle, I found I had Kindled back in August, but I hate to admit it, haven't read it yet, but I'll get around to it. From his website, Daniel says he is a designer and theorist advising some of the world's best-known companies on designing for artificial intelligence, immersive, and voice technologies. At the crux of his philosophies is the idea that in the 21st century, human subjectivity itself is the next frontier for the creative project, a simultaneously dangerous and exciting prospect. Yeah, that'd be very interesting. Owen Cox describes himself as a thinker, reader, and writer, and he's the co-host of the Parallax Sangha podcast. And Daniel and Owen together are co-hosts of the Techno Social podcast. So check them out. So welcome, Daniel and Owen. Hello. Hello, hello, Jim. Hey, good uh, good to be here, or at least it might be good. We'll see how she goes, right? See how it rolls, right? As regular listeners know, I frequently reference Game B, a radical social change movement I've been involved with since 2013. To learn more about Game B, you can go to gamebfilm.org, gameb.wiki, and to join the online community of several thousand people working on Game B, go to www.game-b.org. Unfortunately, the www for arcane technical reasons is necessary. Anyway, Owen and Daniel have been principled critics of Game B, including producing some hilarious and scurrilous memes. They're quite funny, actually, and quite scurrilous. They packaged up some of the criticism and memetics under the label Game C. I thought it'd be fun to have them on here and have a spirited but principled discussion. So, where do you want to start? (laughs) Who wants to go first? Just start talking. So, Game C is probably not something that I would identify with, but certainly... I can come up with some criticisms of game B, broadly speaking. I guess that just off the bat, the main one that comes to mind is, and correct me if I'm wrong, because it might be, it might come from just a misunderstanding from my part, from, from this attempt to logically deal with things that are definitionally illogical. So it seems to me like oftentimes with game B centric discussions, issues like libido, like the way that people have their own enjoyment, uh, issues like the death drive, they're kind of brushed over. And the assumption is that you can logically systematize them away with a good enough system. Whereas Owen and mine's position is that these things are definitionally illogical and therefore cannot be, I guess, cast and solved away into a system. That would be just... Off, off the bat, what I think, Owen, do you have anything to, to add to that? Yeah, I mean, plenty, right? <laughs> I think the thing, Game B or Game C, rather, obviously started as a joke 
the little bit of history behind it, there was an event. Uh, I won't say what event and I won't say which person, but basically it was within the the broader subculture within which we exist. It wasn't explicitly game B thing by any by any chance, but it was a meetup of people who have been networking through the internet to try and explore and understand and strategize and move forwards. And it had been very carefully thought through and structured and planned. And a friend of ours just spent the entire weekend drinking cognac and caused a complete havoc. And it was hilarious. And at some point, someone started saying, well, this is game C. And it stuck (laughs) because there was basically something true in what had happened there that the asshole who decided to just get completely wasted and fuck everything up was giving voice to something that wasn't given voice or an expression in in that situation. It was it was too well thought through. It was too structured. There was no expression of the uh, the ecstasy, the the chaos, the Dionysian, you might say. And that was where we started playing around with this idea of game C. I think as the signifier or the placeholder for all of the stuff, the dirty, seedy, and fun stuff that doesn't seem to be held or formally theorized in the ideas of game A or of game B, precisely because it can't be formally theorized. It kind of takes the quality of being a dirty joke. And of course, there's a deep truth in dirty jokes that's precisely connected up with the kind of tragicomedy of life, I think, with the absurdity of the human condition, the sort of things that the great writers like Shakespeare explore and play with that I don't think we can carefully deal with with our utopian or idealistic attempts to reframe what we should do about human culture. And so game B, game C, sorry, becomes this provocative way to say, uh, okay, but what about the sleaze? What about the fun? What about the booze? Cool. Yeah, I think it's you know a useful critique because I do think it is true that especially the outwardly facing communications from the game B world have tended to be, I mean, we, we both know this isn't exactly right, but the cultural flag left brain, you know, kind of analytical systematizers, etc. I will say, however, that's far from the complete story because, you know, as you guys, as you say, life is messy, is sleazy, is driven by the fact that we're basically apes with clothes, right? And But also, I would also take your point that it's really hard to systematize that. So we've just taken it as a given that humans are going to be humans. And while we can maybe make some marginal changes in how we operate, you know, through things like meditation, psychotechnologies of various sorts, at the end of the day, human beings as human beings, you got to deal with them as they are. And with respect to the, you know, non-normativity, uh, I think this is, a, this is a way to handle this. What you may see is non-addressing the issue. I think perhaps another way to think about it is that we have chosen a deep concept that we call coherent pluralism, that Game B itself uh, is, will have a very small number of axioms, which are critical, such as living within the planetary limits of humanity for at least hundreds of years, for example, that everybody should have a voice in the governance of any activity that wants to call itself Game B. Uh, another one is that Anyone who wants to exit a game B entity needs to be able to do so easily without coercion. And if they have a, the equivalent of a capital account in the community or the business, they need to be able to take that with them. It needs to be portable so you don't lock people in because people will make mistakes. And this goes to the next part of the pluralism side, which was we, we envision 
uh, game B society built up from small cells upwardly as membranes within membranes within membranes, kind of a preforming hierarchy, but not a formal hierarchy. And it's very important that we expect these different bubbles to have different norms and values, as long as they don't violate the coherent core. Sometimes in talks I've given said, for example, I could easily imagine a proto-bee, that's our name for our on-the-ground communities, about 150 people, but maybe 300, something in that range, that could be run like a 19th century Victorian middle-class suburb, you know, with both the rigidity and the hypocrisy in place, right? And I can also imagine another proto-bee run like, what was that crazy-ass dude out in Oregon, USA, had his ranch, was basically a sex cult. I can imagine either of those being proto-bees. And so we haven't systematized that aspects of life because we don't believe we can or should, and that people should decide on norms and values at the local level. But they should decide, which is kind of interesting, right? Because we're not believers. You just take a bunch of people with a bunch of different beliefs and practices, put them together into a 150-person community, and magic will occur, and they'll start to cohere. In fact, uh, I'd like to say that there's kind of a slider between coherence and diversity. And diversity here, not in the uh, you know banal nose-counting method popular on college campuses today, but diversity in the real sense of fundamental differences about values and life missions and, and things of that ilk. Mm-hmm. And that the, at the level of the on-the-ground community, you probably dial in for more coherence. But within the ecosystem of multiple communities, you dial in and look for substantial pluralism so that people can come together and agree. You know, I want to live in a sex cult. You know, I want to live in a Victorian uh, 19th century middle class suburb. Another example I use, because it's one that's often talked about in our game B space, especially by people who are parents, young parents or about to become parents, is standards for whether mobile devices are appropriate for children. I'm of the view they are not, and that giving a nine-year-old a full-on smartphone is worse for them than giving them cigarettes. On the other hand, there are folks that believe that these are incredible educational devices and culturation devices, and that there should be special Game B phones or some damn thing, which I don't know. Let's try them both, see which one works better. So I suspect that what you see as ignoring the Ugly, or not ugly, because I don't think it's ugly. It's beautiful. The human, the apes with clothes aspects, the Game B approach is more to encapsulate it at different Mm -hmm. levels and leave that part to be defined by each community. That makes sense? That does make sense. Here's where I think the paradox lies. It, It feels like Game B is a rather positivistic endeavor, one that, as you said, like searches for coherence and may inadvertently end up producing sort of neo-Benthamisms. You know, Jeremy Bentham, this 19th, 20th century. Utilitarian, yeah. Precisely, right? Let's, let's sort everything out uh, so that society is optimal. And there's a paradox between the, co- the search for a coherent pluralism that encompasses, you know, the real in, 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 in a Lacanian sense in one of the bubbles among many, and this other view, which is more negatological, not positivistic, that is about handling incoherence, about thoroughly exploring the necessary violation of norms. I, I, I'm, I'm sure that Owen will be able to jump in here with, with great examples, but I'm thinking of Nietzsche, Dionysus, Bataille, de Sade. Uh, I, I'm thinking about where, like, 
where does the concept of the psychoanalytical phallus come from? Where does the true form of charisma come from? Where does sexual attraction, any sexual attraction, come from? Well, it comes precisely from the incoherence. You know, even Zizek uh, often touts about the fact that if everything was coherent, nobody would be horny. And I, f- I feel like the, the more we search for that coherent side of things, the less able we are to handle that incoherence and the more out of touch we are with incoherence. And here I just want to flip the order. Whereas perhaps game B wants to create, you know, neat little bubbles for everything and then have one bubble where people can go crazy in and, and, and that's the one where the real and the seedy and the sleazy and the fun happens. I would invert that. And I would say that everywhere there is incoherence, there is violation of norms, and we must perhaps open a space within ourselves, not within societies, not within norms, not within groups. This is spiritual practice. Open space to understand that conflict is spiritual practice, that sex is spiritual practice. And only by understanding it as necessarily incoherent can we think these things through in a way that doesn't end up in what I'd say as neo-benthemist. Hmm, interesting. That's one thing I would not have ever thought of describing Game B as is neo-Benthamist. In fact, we, at least in a very peculiar sense, we may, might have our own functions that we're trying to optimize, but they're not classic utilitarianism, for sure. In fact, we talk about if we have something sort of like a goal, it's maximizing human well-being, rather different than the uh, you know mechanical and material assessments that your typical utilitarian. So in that sense, <laughs> more Bentham than Bentham. Then. Yeah, more Bentham than Bentham, maybe. That's, I like that. That's kind of cool. Now, back to incoherence and, let's say, uh, sex. One, the coherences that we imagine emerging in the Game B bubbles are not totalitarian at all, right? They may be agreement about seven things, let's say. Let's call them the virtues or the norms. Beyond that, again, I would expect many proto-bees or bubbles to be open, right? For instance, one might imagine, but I'd also imagine the opposite. Some of the proto-bees may be very, very prescriptive, and that might work and it might not. Your prediction would be that it would not. I think history is also a pretty good predictor that it won't. But there does seem to be an attractor in humanity to try again and again to be overly prescriptive. But I expect the most healthy proto-bees, the ones that will be copied and replicated, mimetic, mimetically propagated, the mim with an I, will be those that, re- that achieve some reasonable balance of prescription versus openness. And with, specifically with respect to sex, you know, there is a, a definitely a, a tendency in fringes of the Game B movement to what I'd call the trad orientation. You know, get married early, have a bunch of kids, rigid monogamy, etc. But there are also groups and people in the Game B movement who are advocates of polyamory. There are people who are interested uh, express more fluid and open views. And so I think that you'll see it. You'll see all the experiments tried at everywhere in the continuum. But personally, I suspect that a non-totalitarian set of virtues and norms is going to be the winner, particularly for Western people who are already used to that. And there'll be plenty of room for sex. I don't see any sign of living in a community with a reasonable coherent social coherence being on the downside of sex at all. In fact, if you believe the statistics, today's atomized and nihilistic culture has some of the lowest sexual rates ever recorded by humans, right? A typical quite 
prescriptive traditional society, people typically have sex at least seven times a week. You know, how many useless goddamn civilized people are still having sex seven times a week? The statistics say not that many. It almost sounds like you're describing game B as kink design. Why do I say this? This is a a good spirited provocation, but it seems like when I say that negatology or antagonism are sort of essential for sexual attraction, it's precisely because of the role that incoherence has in this. So if you create a space and you say that the norm is agreement with these seven values, then I will immediately think, what about disagreement about these seven norms as enjoyment? What I feel needs to be more sophisticatedly understood, and this is just my view, is that precisely every, everything that you say establishes a limit. Let's do this and let's not do that. And we say that whenever you say let's not do that, where you're actually communicating what you're telegraphing to people is let's do that. That's how human desire works. That's Girard. Girard's whole thesis is that whenever there's a limit, whenever there's an obstacle, people inherently feel attracted to that. And this, again, comes back to my view of a more sophisticated way to create, to make these design gestures, to make regulations, which has to understand that regulations have a sexual component to them, have a sexual enjoyment component to them, not only in the explicit sense, oh, I have, I'm polyamorous, I'm gay, I'm this or that. No, that's a very sort of 20, early 21st century way of seeing it. What I'm saying is that I'm, I'm speaking to a more sort of distributed, dissolved way of seeing sexuality, a way that sees that even, you know, all little elements of everyday life do also carry this charge. They do serve to mediate the realities of sex and violence in a very distributed sense, in a very light sense. It's like sex is diluted everywhere, and wherever we put limits into it, we are, in fact, organizing enjoyment clusters. And that is, is, is what I think we could begin to understand in the 21st century, especially when we, when we are coming up and, and, and engaging in this worthwhile task of thinking about what is the future of society we want to design for ourselves. I guess I'm not sure I understand what you're getting at. That's diffuse sex, right? If, you know, we're organizing a crew of people to go out and pick the apples. Well, I'll tell you. That. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Because, you know, people, people go out and pick apples together probably are more likely to develop an per- interpersonal relationship than people sitting in cubicles programming are. But, but anyway, yeah, give me a thought about how you know, this yeah. diffusion of sex into, into everyday life works. Very, very simple, very easy to, to, to see. The way that in the Twitter sphere, a left-winger enjoys being outraged by a right-winger and a right-winger enjoys being outraged by a left-winger is a perverse, in the best sense possible of the word perverse, by the way, uh, is, is a way of, of, of sexually enjoying. They just don't admit to it. They just don't know it. But there's a sexual relationship at play when one is outraged against the other. This is one example. I mean, we also know other examples. Uh, I'm, not sure I buy, I'm not sure I buy that, you know. Mm. Team red, team blue, beating each other over the head with balloons on Twitter. I don't see any sex there. In fact, I'm about the most unsexy thing I can imagine, as a matter of fact, watching yet another dumpster fire between pinheaded idiots that have no idea what the world's really about. Maybe for the pinheaded idiot, is it is an unacknowledged kink, is what I would suggest, that without them knowing they're living some sort of sexual relationship unconsciously. A friend of mine once said that all relationships, you know, couples, they are 
all relationships are BDSM relationships. They are either consciously so inside of the bedroom or unconsciously so outside of the bedroom. So people do play out these unconscious psychological dynamics. Well, clearly, there's power, clearly there's power dynamics in every human relationship. Uh, but to go from power dynamics to BDSM, I think, strikes me as more than a bridge too far. But I could be wrong. Let's, let's add an, an extra step in the middle, perhaps, then. Instead of saying immediately BDSM, might we not just say that power and sex are intimately connected? And while it may not be for everybody's taste to just up the volume to 11 and just mention BDSM straight off the bat, maybe uh, the, 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 the interesting thing to note here is that between power and sex, between the bedroom and the public sphere, there's a continuous line. And that line doesn't have any specific limits. This idea that there's a public sphere and a private sphere is a 19th century invention that Bentham, and unfortunately up until this point, Game B, still sort of believe in. And I'm suggesting that we should be more sophisticated in understanding these flows, this continuity, this, this more Deleuzian way of understanding things that, my God, when I see these, these debates on, on Twitter, I, I, it's almost like being a voyeur and it's almost like seeing people enjoy these debates, this compulsive nearly obsessive exploration of the same topics, the same themes, looking for the same obstacle, looking for the same person to tell them, no, I'm reading this. Oftentimes when I see that, I'm thinking, my God, this uh, political movements, uh, they start in the bedroom. They start in the bedroom. Let me come back to that. I got a specific thought I want to lay on you. Uh, but let's let Owen have a chance here. <laughs> well, I mean, to just riff on that, I think maybe there's interesting stuff to notice, for example, in the way that sexual fantasies often in some way augment or compensate for, for social positions. So a very, uh, a very common one is the CEO or board member or politician who loves dominatrixes or loves humiliation type stuff. That's a really interesting example in the libidinal field, very common men with lots of power, lots of money, who like to go into intensely submissive relationships there. We could speculate that some of the dynamics that we see very popular in mainstream pornography at the moment reflect things that are going on in the social field too. So for example, what's very popular at the moment, transgender porn and interracial porn, incest porn, big taboos, especially where certainly the, the first two these are really areas that are incredibly prohibited and restricted at the, at you might say, the normative cultural morals. So you have to accept transgenderism. You have to try and accept the, the multiculturalism. And yet the, the erotic fantasy is really going into the, the monstrosity and the alienness and the otherness precisely of the, these things that at the surface level we work very hard to accept. And we probably didn't have the same intense focus on, for example, transgender porn or on interracial porn 100 years ago or 500 years ago. There's something about the unique dynamics of the present that then begin to get reflected in the, uh, in the sexual unconscious and in the sexual uh, sleazy field. So what I guess Daniel might be speculating his way towards is what new forms of perversity and enjoyment might emerge in something like a game B operating system. And also what types of character, what types of people might themselves even be attracted towards these types of communities in the first place? This is an open question. We don't know, but it's, a, it's, it's an interesting one to continue to, th to be thinking about. 
and, and something that that's uh, you know as I've just been listening, I think the the experimental ethos of Game B seems very intelligent. It seems like the right way to be going forwards of this. It reminds me of what I've read about the great research programs of the 20th century, say the ARPA program, where you basically allow things to find, let the best work come forwards, right? And, and, and the other, as long as you, you can have a lot of failure, as long as some things are succeeding. But lots of the intentional communities and kind of utopian projects of getting people to live together in the 20th century end in humongous falling outs, whether it's after two years or 10 years, and usually due to some kind of excess sexual buildup, often because some person becomes a charismatic leader and and then it, it, it explodes outwards. So it'd be interesting to know, for example, um, what within the game be thinking is trying to say be different to a lot of the other hippie intentional communities that exist in eco villages or around Bali that at least from what I'm hearing often crumble after a certain amount of time. Oh yeah. There's great statistics on that, that uh, most of them crumble in two or three years. A few make it four to seven, even fewer make it 15 and only the rarest ones make it long-term. And those are generally religious, right? Hutterite, for instance, right? Though there is one counterexample, which is what I mind a lot for some of the game, the ideas other people have too. And that's the Israeli kibbutz. Israeli kibbutzes are now around for over 100 years, and 80% of them are radically secular. They were actually founded by Eastern European socialists, mostly from Russia and Poland, who were radically atheistic and still are. And yet they have built an operating system. And this is the thing. They built a real operating system that includes the social and the economic you know, Israeli kibbutzes provide 20% of the industrial production of Israel and 50% of the agricultural production of Israel, despite only being 2% of the population. So they have gone in the direction that Game B thinks, which is, you know, a bunch of hippies living on 40 acres and, you know, making hammocks or something to sell to tourists is not a real thing. It's, it's a, a luxury good for people with trust funds, or it's a refuge for people who can't cut it in the real world. We don't see Game B as that at all. We see Game B as something that can outcompete Game A in many cases, as we say, actively parasitize Game A by being able to do real things really well, the way Israeli kibbutzes do. So I, I use them as the, mm-hmm. the hopeful pattern rather than the anti-pattern of 40 hippies showed up on buses and uh, on 40 acres and, just, you know, well, fuck all that, right? Anyway, I would, I would put that as the the other pattern that, that has been shown to work, and that's, what, that's where we're going, because that's to be a complete social operating system. If you don't actually have the means of production and the way to make a living in the world, you're just playing, basically. You think about life, you know, the first thing that evolution is looking for is how does this thing make a living? If it doesn't, it dies and doesn't pass on its genes. Those that can make a living pass on their genes and become part of the lineage. And Mm -hmm. humans, of course, don't have to wait for genes. We can build things socially, but, you know, Game B from the very beginning, the very first day, always assumed it was a complete stack OS that could make its own way in the world and not just a parasite for uh, peculiar people on the side. Is there much Jewish cultural ritual in the, in the kibbutzes? I I haven't looked into them at all. So I'm genuinely curious. Like, is it totally atheistic with no trace of Jewish culture or do they do that thing that Jews often do, which is that they don't subscribe to the metaphysics, but they still make a point of going through some of the, the family traditions and the song and dance and the music and so on. 
As I understand it, the original first generation were radically atheists and tried to purge all the traditional holidays and ceremonies. But over time, they have come back in and that many kibbutzes now do celebrate the traditional Jewish holidays, but in a secular fashion. And then about 20% of kibbutzes were actually founded a little bit later by religious-oriented Jews and are, you know, take the whole thing. You know, they do it all, not just performatively, but metaphysically as well. But yes, as far as I know, that many of them do now do Purim and, you know, they do the, but they, you know, they tell the kids, you know, know, this is like Santa Claus, right? This is, we're not talking about the metaphysics here, Mm -hmm. but but it's our, it's our, our people, it's our tribal tradition and we're going to, we're going to keep with it. But initially they, they were radically against it and tried to purge it. But as we know, it's mighty hard to purge those things. Let me go back to one thing you said you know, about pornography. Now, this is something that has been, uh, there's different opinions on in Game B. I was at a dinner recently with four Game B people from all around the world, as it turned out. And it turned out all four of us believed that a perfectly reasonable proto-B norm, optional dorm, but set in one of the proto-Bs and enforced there, no pornography might be a good idea. That pornography has degraded sex in the world, one could argue. You know, that this hyper-perversity and decadence that we're seeing and enjoying sometimes may not be good for us. That having let this beast loose, particularly to people at the impressionable ages, may be doing way more harm than good. I, you know, well, I, can I say that on the Bible? That's definitely true? No. But do I think it might be true? Yes. And I sometimes uh, tell on the podcast a funny story from when I was 11. My best buddy that summer between sixth and seventh grade, his uncle was in the Merchant Marines. And he had a little shack of a house, 500 square feet, that'd be 50 square meters for those who use such things. And he wasn't home too much, but this little shack he lived in, he built up a collection of dirty magazines, right? Uh, in those days, one turns out the one he collected was called Jugs, basically pictures of big-breasted gals with their tops off, right? They were like 1950s style with puffy hair and all this stuff. So anyway, uh, my buddy Billy says, if, we, if we're willing to walk over to my uncle's shack, he, he sold his shack with two acres on it to a developer for a pile of money and was going to move into someplace else. You know, he'll give us his, his dirty magazines. So it was the middle of August, D.C. area, hot as hell. We walked three miles to his uncle's place, took a burlap sack with us, and actually two burlap sacks, and filled the sacks up as much as we could carry of these dirty magazines, and then hiked back three more miles of hot, sweltering, humid Washington, D.C. suburb summer. And these Jugs magazines became like the thing. We buried them in the woods, and we traded them for things. And this was like the most innocuous stuff. And I say, Compare that to the kids today who type up triple penetration with cuckoldry, right? 11 years old, and they get all they want, right? Or as you say, transgender porn or, you know, BDSM with blood, right? Uh, 11-year-old has that on tap. Is that healthy? I'm not at all sure that it is. And that a society that dedicates itself to decadence and perversity is some people might call it, uh, pervasively, is may not be as good a society as one that is more disciplined about how it attracts sex. As I, as I mentioned, you know, very traditional society, sex seven times a day, sometimes a week. They're actually, they actually did a better job of having sex and having sex in their lives yeah, than, yeah, yeah. than the decadent perverts of today do. So, you know, maybe pornography should be excluded from the social realm. 
I, 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 I agree with the intention and, and truly the examples that you put forth, they, 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 they make, they make a point, but I don't see, I disagree with the opposition you cast. I don't see that this is an opposition between all the sex in the world without limits and then no sex. I think there's something beyond that. There's something beyond that negation of, of sex that comes in, uh, you know, let's create a, a proto B place where people don't have access to these things. Let's enforce a very strict rule. I think what we need to do is sort of sublate this into the negation of negation and be sophisticated. Be sophisticated about how we understand and sublate these things because, my God, it's not just one or zero. There's, a, there's something else. So what I think might make sense also in connection to some previous points that we were talking about, to speak of when we speak of sex and projects and all these things, I think we need to sublate these underlying sexual dynamics that exist, as we argue, a little bit everywhere. And we need to sublate them into design principles. Now, these design principles should not be norms to be enforced at the barrel of a gun. They rather should be understood as practice, practice, spiritual practice. However, there's a caveat here. With a norm, you can create and instantiate a cult or a community or a government. You can create a set of laws. But with praxis, praxis requires sophisticated subjects. It requires continuous iteration. And sophisticated subjects are you know, developed to a position where they can understand both the rule, its negation, and they understand both of these things as a polarity they can play with and go wherever they want. So the answer is not let's completely open up sex uh, and make it absolutely unlimited. But the answer is also not let's completely uh, shut it down. My suggestion is to understand it a little bit better as this praxis that, that sophisticated subjects engage in for the sake of projects. Now, this connects to the kibbutz argument. What is a kibbutz? The, 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 the underlying element in the kibbutz is thousands of years of artificial selection of the community, which created a tribe and a community that works, even though you know, in the 20th century they call themselves atheists. But there's something else behind that. What is that something else? A specific attitude towards sex that has driven the reproduction and the artificial selection of people throughout many years. That's why it works. Simple as that. And isn't this sexual praxis as spiritual praxis? This is my connection between the religious and the sexual and the cultural. These things are all connected in many, 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 many layers. And only like my argument is we, we should begin to understand these things as sophisticated praxis, as spiritual praxis, so that, so that we can do project and, and come up with design principles with a little bit more depth than simply creating a norm and a rule and speaking in terms of thou shalt or thou shalt not. I think we should, we should move beyond that. Yeah, of course, that's an interesting point. But one of the things you said is sophisticated, etc. Keep in mind that most people are not very sophisticated, right? Uh, you know how dull a person is with an IQ of 100? Half the people are dumber than that, right? Take a look at uh, Hansi Freinach statistics on his table of hierarchical complexity. The number of people at the top few levels are, you know, less than 1%. One of the key design principles of game B is that this is for everybody. This has to be for all eight, eventually, 
all 8 billion humans, or at least in the short term, 500 million Westerners. And we have to make sure that we have lives that provide safety, fulfillment, and dignity to everybody, irrespective of their biological or social or familial endowments. And I think there's an awful lot of this fringe thinking that says, yeah, wouldn't this be great if everybody had an IQ of above 130 and went to a fancy university and could read Hegel and actually understand it? Well, guess what? That ain't the real world, folks. So that's one pushback I regularly give to some critics. We have to build a society for everybody. And that's what traditional societies did, right? Before 1870, when we still got our our security and our provisioning from our face-to-face communities, if you were somebody's mentally retarded brother, they took care of you. If you were an eccentric uncle who liked to drink too much, you lived in your grandmother's attic. There were no homeless, right? But in our atomized society where the the endowed get richer, the the St. Matthew effect, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Uh, we get the kind of shit show society we have today. We have to design our society to not assume top one percentile of intellect and education if we're going to make it work. Uh, secondly, before, we, before you go on and answer, you use two terms which are, are not going to be familiar to most of our audience and to be useful to define them, and that's sublate and praxis. Uh, would you like me to define that? Yeah, if you want to define them, then if you could respond to the other stuff. Sublate is, uh, as far as I understand it, when you take sort of an opposition and you you, you transcend that opposition by taking sort of the, the, it's the simultaneous coincidence of opposites is the place where A and B meet, that's C. Like where when, where you take, for example, in the example of sex, the, the, you know, position A being the current society of extreme sexual libertinism. And you take the point where that coincides with complete sexual denial and you have a third the third position which would be sexual denial as pleasure people who enjoy <laughs> sexual denial and i find that that's a tremendous way to get over uh oppositions which are sometimes too static and, and that's what i mean by sublation let's try to move this is how we move this is hegel this is how we move beyond apparently intractable oppositions and the other term is praxis right praxis is is, is practice is something you do often time and again Simple as that. That's easy enough. Why don't just call it practice? What the fuck, right? <laughs> have to be fancy. Put that philosophical bullshit on there, right? And I should just point out, nobody in Game B is claiming there should be no sex, right? Quite the contrary. We expect the, that the good life, if we're, that's what we're trying to get, includes lots of sex, right? Sex is a very important part of human life. And so don't get anybody get the idea that Game B is for no sex. Quite the contrary. And also very important to note that while I mentioned there is no doubt a tendency in Game B for no pornography, for example, no doubt there's also groups that would like to have lots of pornography, right? So uh, this idea of, of norms in a small bubble, but pluralism across is also important to keep in mind. So Hmm. If I might jump in here, there's something that I was on my mind when you were talking, Jim, about this yes or no question. And I do think it's it's not the right question because humans have always been making pornography in some format or another. You know, there's dicks all over the walls in the ruins of Pompeii. There's sexual drawings in caves. There's there's dirty novels from the 18th and 19th centuries. What we are at is at a weird historical point where ubiquitous internet and the fact that everybody has got a camera means we're in a very different phase of what pornography looks like. 
I don't think we're just going to get rid of it. And I think a community that actually makes one of its valued principles that we don't do this stuff here. As long as the kids have access to video cameras, well, what's the most transgressive thing that you can do in a place that says we don't film each other fucking? Well, you're going to go and film each other fucking. <laughs> so, so that's the thing, right? Like you can't get rid of this stuff. And this is why it, um, it, it the, the interesting question to me is actually like, what are the more interesting forms of pornography for the 21st century? What are the sort of voyeuristic, exhibitionistic, nightclub-style dynamics that we can build as, as, as artists, as, as theatre people and so on that scratch that itch in a more satisfying way than just jerking off to Pornhub on your own? Like, and I think to me this is kind of where the interesting creativity goes, is bringing back a kind of interesting experimental community burlesque as opposed to it being solo online stuff i mean i think if anything that's where culture is really being suffocated at the moment in general is that so much of it is accessed on alone through a laptop or on a computer you don't go to a movie theater anymore and watch a movie from the great era of hollywood in a room with 300 strangers you watch it in front of a computer and potentially check your phone halfway through. And I think there's a massive loss here because we actually lose the ritual intensity of the space. And then that leaves us craving for more of an intensity in some other way. And so it's that perpetual dissatisfaction. So that would be my my interest, certainly as an artist myself, on the like kind of fringe of the game B conversations, is where are the conversations about building these nightclub style dynamics within the game B world? Yeah, I think a perfectly legitimate thing to do from a, a nomenclature perspective. Though, of course, as we know, nomenclature is just an arbitrary boundary. Uh, we have the concept of game B ventures that people get together and do game B things as businesses, right? And they may or may not be associated with proto bees. And so one could have a game B venture that was a burlesque club, right? Might be cool. And again, within the coherent pluralism of game B. Nobody would say anything about it, right? Now, it may be that some people in some proto-bees would never go there, but there would be others that would. So that's the beauty of coherent pluralism. There's room to explore basically very, very wide spaces. And this is the other side of it, though, that's important, without compelling people who don't like that to have to see it or engage with it. They just don't want to do that. I want to do I got my, I'm focused on my family, my farmstead, my crafts, etc. And frankly, I'm not too interested in all those urban perverts. God damn them, right? Well, on the other hand, there are people who like that stuff. And then, you know, of course, as you say, the, the the sad reduction that we've reached is the person sitting in their mother's basement jerking off to Pornhub. You know, that is a classic example of game A hijacking our neurotransmitters and neuromodulators to reduce us to the lowest kind of humanity. And it's exactly the kind of thing that Game B is opposed to. And I think all right-thinking people should be opposed to. Mm. And I think maybe just kind of continuing to riff from that, part of my critiques of Game B that have come out in the, in the, in the videos and the conversations is that when I was paying a lot of attention to those conversations, I wasn't attracted as the sort of person who would like to go to these sort of seedy urban perversisms there was nothing in the conversation or in the movement or in its public face that made me think that stuff is even going on here or that there's space to do that and develop that here. Like my historical path over the last couple of years was that I got into Rebel Wisdom. I saw some of your guys talking about Game B on Rebel Wisdom. I was like, oh, that's cool. 
And then I saw Andrew Sweeney and Alexander Bard doing their Sweeney versus Bard and talking about rock and roll and cigars and partying. And I was like, ah, I, I need to go more in that direction because there's something there that the American Santa Fe guys aren't getting at. And I do think it's important to bring them back together and to see those things as being part of a, a, an emerging culture together. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, uh, we do talk about it, but probably not enough. It's a good point. One of the core values of Game B is that human well-being substantially is driven by conviviality, right? Social conviviality in person. And, you know, I imagine uh, part of me I'm involved with, if there is ever such a thing, you know, we'll have a beer hall and we'll have Friday night singing and dancing and, and such. And that, uh, and cigar, I used to like cigars. I got a heart condition, doesn't let me smoke them anymore, alas. But, you know, I, I think smoking, uh, smoking cigars and drinking good beer, it's a good thing, right? And use the beer to wash down a big old pork roast and some sauerkraut and all that's good. I don't think there's anything about Game B that, mitigates against that. Quite the contrary, the the high value that we place on true interpersonal, on the ground, face-to-face conviviality actually speaks to those things as areas of extra space. It's funny, I was just counseling a Game B person about an event that she wants to have just before, right before this. And, and I talked about the fact that don't fall into the trap of having too many galaxy brains, right? And spend, you know, at least Thirty percent of your budget on the conviviality aspects, on the on the on the food and the drink and the parties and things of that sort, because that's what people are going to remember, frankly, rather than yet another didactic blah blah by the galaxy brains. Right. So I'm with you there, but it's probably a good point that we don't emphasize that conviviality component enough. I'll kind of try to remember to do that. I wanted to go back to Daniel and the sexual pinheads bashing each other on Twitter. I still don't. I don't see that. I mean, I've I've been I've been that pinhead, right? And frankly, more before Twitter, before earlier platforms, when I was more of your flame warrior, I used to enjoy having a good flame war, right? But I don't think there was anything sexual about that at all. But but I do think what it was close to something else that has been part of your critique is that Game B doesn't deal with violence enough. I think a good flame war and a good bashing online is really a sublimation of violence more than it is a sublimation of sex. When I have a winning hand in a flame war, I feel that exultant, yeah, motherfucker, right? <laughs> and not kind of the discharge and ease that you feel after a good sexual encounter. So I'm going to push back and say that online flame wars and bashing are more about more like analogous to sublimations of violence than they are sex. Fair enough, fair enough. Could be. Hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, it, I think in the the Freudian view that Daniel is arguing from that it is ultimately all expressions of this libido and in its more unconstrained forms that plays out in, in sex first. And then as we get developed more power, uh, it, it turns into violence. Like the first thing we learn to do is to desire the mother and suck on the tit. So there's like an erotic transference between two human beings there. But then through development, then learning to actually hate the mother or hate the things that prohibit us from getting to the mother, that's then where we start developing a capacity for violence and frustration. But there's always some kind of connection between desire or non-satisfied desire and conquering or overpowering an opponent. Like Freud would speculate that there is a lot of sadomasochism that's tied up with it. You don't have to necessarily run with that. You can still go with the point, maybe it is the violent impulses rather than the sexual impulses. But there's still, I think, 
a clear amount of enjoyment in in the domination. I mean, you said it yourself, right? Winning a flame war is a hell of a lot of fun. And precisely because we have the internet, you can do it without really having stakes in the game. It kind of replaces, in a sense, sport. You know, sports gets increasingly boring when you can have Twitter flame wars. And uh, and sports and flame wars are both sublimations of war, right? Which are violence, right? And as to Dr. Freud being a cognitive science person, I take Dr. Freud with more than a grain of salt. I think I'll put the whole shaker. I think of him as more of a brilliant literary figure than a scientist or a philosopher. And so, no, I don't see sex everywhere. And sometimes I like to say, Dr. Freud, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> Freud would say that in itself might as well be a sexual position. Well, it's the pleasure of the fight, I guess. But I like that you bring in right that that point about the sublimation of war. Like I think this is one of the things that in all of our cultural movements we need to be thinking about. Like the 20th century used sports culture, it used mass music culture, it used cinema as its rituals to outlay the sexual and the violent impulses. And increasingly in the mainstream, these things become sanitized and more bourgeois. Like uh, here, everyone's trying to make football polite now and take all of the gruff working class elements out of it. Similarly, in the arts world, more and more there's this discourse on we have to give a voice to the people who have been marginalized. Yes, maybe there's some reason for that, but it actually just creates a perverse incentive where everybody who's from a marginalized community needs to then make artwork that expresses what it's like to be from a marginalized community and what it's like to be traumatized and being that thing. And so everything just becomes more and more about the trauma of the marginalized and nothing increasingly exciting or new gets said. It's just about making, I think, (laughs) the normal bourgeois people feel a little bit better about themselves. And so the transgressive element of sports, of music, of cinema is increasingly being lost in the mainstream. It's kind of alive in the underground, I think, for sure. I think underground culture is fascinating. What I, uh, I'm increasingly curious about, and this taps into what I've been saying, is making sure that the the worlds that are developing through the internet, stuff like Game B, taps into that electric transgressive energy of the underground culture that is the sublimation of war and sexuality. So we actually have ritual spaces to get that Aristotelian catharsis, you might say, and not just end up walking around stiff and neurotic like I think more and more people are without even really realizing it because there is no good outlet. Game B is the opposite of that. For instance, two of our experts on Game B education, they ran a school, uh, what they called real learning, which was quite unstructured. And when I first met them, I asked them about fighting. One of my big objections to American culture today is they don't let kids fight anymore. Right. When I was a lad, everybody fought. Right. Boys, girls, you know, you didn't fight all the time, but you fought. Right. And truthfully, losing a fight had no great disgrace. The only thing that had disgrace was refusing to fight. And uh, particularly for adolescent boys, say 11 to 15 or 16, if they don't fight, they don't learn how to be human beings. Right. And I've often postulated that the school shooting epidemic has come around because you won't let boys fight instead, right? Because if you fight, you know that the limits are, right? In my hometown, we had the, it was informal, we call it the code, right? If you're fighting with somebody from your town, you can't stomp them when they're on the ground, right? If they stay down, fight is over. You can't gouge eyes, you can't tear off ears, right? There were definite limits. And never, never, never could you produce a weapon. Anybody who produced a weapon in a fist fight was you know, excommunicated from the community, essentially. No one could have not imagine a worse 
worse. And so anyway, I asked these two education experts about fighting. They said, oh yeah, at our school, if two kids have a real gripe, what we did is we give them big boxing gloves, you know, big puffy 16 ounce boxing, boxing gloves and said, go outside and settle it and we'll watch, but you can have at it, right? And I thought that was very interesting because you know, I will say in our kind of street level fighting, people did get teeth knocked out and, you know, jaws busted and stuff like that, which is probably not optimal. And uh, so turning this into a more ritualized form of violence that was a bit safer, I thought was a very interesting move. Another Game B adjacent thinker who I think very highly of, a guy named Tyson Yunkaporta, also is a strong believer that ritualized violence probably should should be part of many communities. Some may opt out, you know, rigid pacifism and, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, that's another way to organize this. Mm-hmm. Imagine proto-bees that say, hey, no violence at all. Just don't like it. But, uh, you know, yeah. my own bet is going to be, put it this way, an interesting ingredient to emergence is to allow ritualized violence in a way that's physically safe, but allows that natural primate mammal desire for conflict to occur. Absolutely. I, 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 tr- I agree. I agree. Perhaps before prescribing how the form of this ritualized violence can be, Perhaps we need to understand a little bit deeper where that violence or the sexuality comes from and how it plays out at a deeper level. That would be perhaps my, my only point. Because, for example, Jim, you mentioned uh, school shooters. We, we know that school shooters typically, you know, nowadays, they're said to belong to this group of people called the incels, the involuntary celibates. And that part of why they're so, you know, they have such a, such a disaffected profile with society comes from their sexual position. They, for some reason in 2022, they cannot find any partners to have sex with or to have romantic relationships with. And this ends up manifesting itself in these horrible things like school shootings. So my point here is that in order to design and to create a project for game B spaces, and in order to design social containers that can ritualize these deeper impulses of people, I think it's really, really important to understand the unconscious sexual and violent dynamics that are at play so that these containers can tenably give way and, and, and sublimate them in a, in, a, in a good way, in a way that, you know, that it wouldn't work the same way today as it did in the 1950s, these containers, is what I'm saying. And so that's why I would even argue that to understand these unconscious sexual dynamics, it is important to go back to a guy like Freud or Lacan or, or Zizek to, to, to properly bring into, into this practice of designing social containers to bring this psychoanalytical angle to it so that when we design them, they take into account these oftentimes hidden motivations behind people's actions. Yeah. Any thoughts on how one might go about operationalizing that? You know, Hansi Freinach, you know, yeah. we know who he, he talks about, or they talk about, he talks about. Yeah. Education ought to include strong teachings about how to have a relationship. There ought to be dating mentors for 14 and 15-year-olds. I think that's probably a good idea in terms of not having sex. Back in my day, very few people had sex before they were 16 or so. That was, you know, so we were all in cells, right? We didn't go shoot up to school. But on the other hand, we dated and you know, had relationships and things of that sort. And so, you know, the idea of having developing your romantic and interpersonal life as a psychotechnology makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Well, my answer to that would be that uh, to, to have 
the design of social containers happen as a practice. In other words, to properly workshop these questions uh, in a design setting and to do that not once and for all as a norm that must work for everybody universally. That is the, coming back to something you said previously, Jim, that you know we're coming up, Game B is coming up with norms that should work universally. I disagree with that. I think that I'm a, so I'm a designer, and I think design is inherently discriminatory because it says yes to some things and no to other things. And I think that if we are to make something work, it must work in a specific container for some people and not for others. We're speaking in one language, not in another language. The way we speak is inherently discriminatory to non-English speakers, for example. And so my point is that, you know, first, as designers, we must be humble and forfeit the tendency or the vice of universalism, which is a very fashionable thing to say nowadays. But yeah, we're not designing the universal norm. We're designing for particularities. And we know this, right? There's, there's a lot of different proto-Bs. But in each of these proto-Bs, the way that these norms are approached that, that approach, in my view, is not a legislative act. I'm going to be biased here. It is a design act. It's something that needs to be workshopped, workshopped with a lot of different people, with the typical profiles of the, of the users in mind, of the typical inhabitants of these communities in mind, right? What works for you might not work for me, et cetera. And then just workshop those hard, hard questions time and again. The reason why Hansi says that people should have dating coaches is and I say this as a, as a, in a positive sense, is because Hanzis are Scandinavian. There's nothing closer to a proto-B society than Scandinavia. Everybody looks the same. Everybody thinks the same. It's very rich. It's a perfect playground for that. But it, it works precisely because it's so closed and contained. Whereas uh, in order to experiment some of these prescriptions in other places, you cannot just copy-paste the prescription and, 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 and apply it somewhere else. No, you have to workshop it. You have to understand the people. And so this is why I advocate for ontological design. The whole premise is that you need to have a design practice behind this in the same way that you would also workshop other products, digital experiences, et cetera. So, or how you, how you decide how you run your farm, right? You have to design that. Yeah. And I do think we are not prescriptive in how a proto-B develops its emergent governance, right? You know, hopefully there'll be some templates eventually say, hey, here's some things that have worked elsewhere, take those. But we do assume that the actual people on the ground that are forming a proto-B will cooperatively and emergently create their own governance structure. And that might include uh, bringing in outside experts who have design skills with respect to community governance and community dynamics. So I don't see, I don't see any uh, conflict here. I think uh, that perfectly compatible with uh, how we have envisioned game bees coming into being. Uh, make they, you know, people are going to live there, or at least the founders of the community, make some collective decisions on how they're, how they're going to operate. Now, back to the universals, I will push back on that a little bit. As I gave you a list of very, three universals, a very small list, one of which is that we live in balance with Mother Nature, with the nine the nine planetary boundaries are, are useful examples of that. I'm going to put that, I put a flag down and say, God damn it, that's a universal value, period. Can't, can't violate that one. And the reason is the concept of subsidiarity, which is important in Game B, which is rules and decisions and actions should be pushed down to the lowest possible level that are relevant to the problem being dealt with. Well, it turns out that survival of humanity on Earth is a planetary level 
issue. And so therefore, it is appropriate to have a planetary standard that thou shalt not violate the nine planetary limits, right? And I'm, I'm fine with that. I'll stand, I'll stand on that one. Yeah, I'm with you. But I think I'm with you, but we have to include within the fact that that is like a <laughs> my friend Alexander Bard would probably say an imperialistic stance, right? America right now sets the global rules and we have a relative deep degree of peace and stability with it. I'm cool with that. It seems to be crumbling on the fringes at the moment with China, with whatever the fuck's going on in Ukraine. But I think in order to be taking that sort of global governance perspective, there needs to be also the readiness to fight over it. Yep, but transgressors will have to be punished. On the the other hand, American hegemony is not going to last, at least under our model. Our model says that today a typical American burns about 12,000 watts continuous power implicit in the products they use, their transportation, their house, etc. A person in Angola, about 500 watts. A person in Sudan, maybe 1,100 watts. A uh, person in Bolivia, if I remember the numbers, 1,500 watts. And if you run the numbers and do some some attempts at simulation of what we could get to in 50 or 60 years in terms of renewable energy, non-carbon, carbon renewable, et cetera, it kind of looks like 3,500 to 4,000 watts per person for the world. And another part of the game be ethos is that over two generations or so, the West and the rest should asymptotically approach the same number of energetic intensity in our society. And that's going to be a big move for U.S., Australia, and Canada, who are the biggest offenders, only slightly less so for Europe and a bit less so for Japan. Uh, But it's going to be a big boon for everybody else in the world. And this is going to require a gigantic change in mindset. Americans, Europeans, they're not ready to give up their Mercedes and their 300 square meter houses, this, that, and the other thing, yet. Yet, but I'd like to say that you know, living in a seven thousand or seven hundred meter house and driving a BMW M series ought to look like, or ought to feel morally like somebody standing on at a street corner and spouting the N word. It ought to be considered morally repugnant in a major way, and it's not that way yet. But it is part of the Game B movement that, in a generation or so, it ought to be that way. But see, Jim, here is where I come back to perhaps the critique I was making previously. You mentioned and very well this quantifiable energy difference between the consumption of Europe and America and the rest of the world and how this is unsustainable in order to stay true to this ethos of to live in balance with Mother Nature. However, and you say that in order to affect this change, we need a cultural moral shift. I do think, however, that the problem and the question of the moral shift that and cultural shift that, in your words, must happen, that is a question that Game B does not understand. And because it does not understand, it falls back to these activisms, which are almost like Protestant moral guilt games. You consume a lot of energy, you should feel guilty. And you, who are more pure, more pious, more green, you should feel more you are a better person than everybody else and you get to enjoy that a little bit. My, my point is the following. Why don't we investigate the moral question a little bit deeper and understand with the same degree of, 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 of acumen that we understand the quantifiable problems, the conscious problems. What if we apply that same degree of sort of precision and analysis to these more hard to quantify problems, like the problems of the unconscious moral energy 
of culture, of why guilt exists or does not exist. Because if we do not understand these problems, then they are perhaps at the mercy of more sophisticated bad actors. When a Hitler or a Trump rouse the masses with their incendiary speeches, what are they doing if not tapping into the vast reservoirs of unquantifiable unconscious energy? If you don't read Freud, someone else will. Uh, well, I have read his son-in-law, right? The famous uh, Bernays, guy. There you go. Bernays, right? Bernays is very useful, right? And then, and then <laughs> I have read This is part of, of, of this attempt to understand and learn power, both in its quantifiable as well as in its more unquantifiable aspects. And I think the latter is very uh, that's, a, that, that's a damn good point. I will say that the brainy, big you know, systems types that you hear about in Game B, none of us are any good at culture, right? We're not artists. We're not culture hackers. Well, in fact, we're sort of abnormal sorts. In fact, I, when I ran companies, I always told our you know, advertising people and our branding people, please don't ever bring me anything to approve. I have the world's most contrarian tastes. And if I like something, probably nobody else will. And Actually, one of the things that we have laid out for the evolution of Game B is we we need to have a we have a small and growing. We need to have, like, for instance, the Game B film came out of our artistic corner. We need to have more artists, and they have to be trying more and different things. We need social designers. I don't know a goddamn thing about Lacoon or Freud or how <laughs> that might be working. In, but there, we should get people in that do know those how to do those things and think about what some of the moves might be to achieve the results we know we have to have. I mean, it is. I think it's a given that we have to find the way to get to this cultural switch that results in the convergence of people on a worldwide basis into an intensity of civilization that's sustainable. Now, how you do that cultural shift, that's a, another question. Don't know the answer to that one today, but any help you guys could give us, that'd be great. Well, I mean, that's that's the interesting point, right? I mean, I we think about this a bunch with, uh, with one of our friends, Cattle Lost, as well, like where we stand and where we're just interesting to examine the position we're in as weird online podcast thinker writers artists who are kind of existing outside of the old institutions but there aren't yet new institutions to provide the structure or the funding or the shield from the brutal techno-capitalist marketplace and so it's kind of just a game of luck now I've been lucky because I've been lucky to have people who, um, what would you say, patrons who, who have helped us out, basically. But not everybody has that. And there's lots of fringe weirdo kids who are 20, 21, who are fucking brilliant philosophers, fucking brilliant artists who have no resources coming to them at all. And they don't even appear to be the structures that can that can hold them and give them stuff. And this is where, you know, I mentioned earlier that I'd been researching that ARPA project. I found that fascinating. And I think one of the things that's desperately needed for this cultural shift is just more institutions that can hold weirdos doing weird creative projects that we don't know exactly how they're going to be useful yet. It might be a weird burlesque play. It might be just a bizarre combination of, like you said, of Lacan and Freud and God knows what else. And if we don't have that, then it's just going to be a selection for the tiny minority of people who already have the resources to do it, who are able to balance their time between a job and a tech company and doing this sort of stuff, or who are lucky enough to find the patrons. And and this is something, you know, I, this doesn't exist yet, but I think it rapidly needs to exist, as well as, say, proto-B-type structures that are actually trying to do on-the-ground co- community building. 
I think we need things that are probably more like distributed research organizations that can fund stuff like this. Yep. And, uh, and absolutely, 100% agree. And, and the Game B game plan are uh, pools of money for creators. As uh, Jordan Hall, one of the key Game B thinkers, has laid out the very interesting and important distinction between rivalrous economics and non-rivalrous economics. In shorthand, a rivalrous economics is about things like a ham sandwich. Either you eat it or I eat it. Well, a non-rivalrous good is one like, say, an MP3 file that it costs almost nothing to duplicate. And in, it, it seems obvious that to maximize the value of these things, anyone who wants an MP3 file should have one, you know, whether they can pay or not, right? And on the other hand, producers need to get paid. And so we've done some work on what does an ecosystem look like whereby people are paid, not by, on how many copies of their MP3 file went out into the world, but by... Uh, essentially the decision of individual people to cast their vote for the allocation of the resources from this pool, say they might be funded by a bunch of proto-bees to go out and fund various artistic and other kinds of creative and scientific endeavors. Absolutely. We had some conversations about a year ago, six months ago, about that. And I suspect we'll see that restarting again to literally set up a funding pool for artists and creators in and around the community. I think it's important to include the around part. We don't want this to be too self-referential. Anyway, guys, I'm coming up here on my time limit. Any final thoughts, last few minutes? Well, maybe I'll just reiterate a little bit of, of, of the thing that I've been speculating and aiming at uh, in this conversation, uh, kind of reaching the conclusion that there is something in culture, in the intangible assets of culture and morality that that moves in, in strange ways, but also holds the promise of incredible leverage. You know, the stone, the, 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 what do you call it? The Archimedean point on which you can lift the whole world. The lever and the pivot, right? Exactly. The pivot of the, of, of the lever that will lift the world is, in my view, uh, something intangible, cultural, moral, psychological. It exists in the hearts and minds of people. And, and in order to, you know, move move the projects that Game B has, and which just the impetus of doing a project is in itself fantastic. The leverage for that, in my view, have, exists in the hearts and minds. And, and that is my point. That is my sort of final point. Okay, great. Owen? Yeah, and for me, I mean, it's a pleasure to meet you at last, Jim, rather than just casting trash at each other on the IDW. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, and I, I think that you know this last point that I was just touching on is 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 important for me. Like we've got projects, we've got guys like projects like the Parallax Sangha, like Philosophy Portal that Cadell runs that have got multiple young guys within them that just need some kind of structure and money to hold them for a year so they can do some weird shit. And so if these conversations around arts and culture funding institutions are getting up and running, give me a call. All right, sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think we had a good conversation. I, you know, as I'm sure the audience will realize, we did so respectfully. And when we disagreed, we disagreed forthrightly. And I think, I think we actually modeled how to do this fairly well today, fellas. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Yeah, so that's it was uh, Owen Cox and Daniel Frega. This was great. Look forward to chatting with you all in the future. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Likewise, man. Take care. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.